It is great to see you all this morning, though. Glad you guys made it out here. Hope your uh, Thanksgiving was wonderful and you're continuing in that holiday frame of mind this morning. Chad, I thought we would get the backlight for the cross to be purple. I know it can be done. I know purple's a royal color, so there's good reason for it, but you'll, you'll have to twist some arms back there or something. But Anyway, hope you have a... Uh, a settled sense of contentedness over you this morning after the holiday, if not my apologies. I'm glad you're here either way. I hope we can offer some, some truth from God's word. We can share this time together and go away feeling like we've, we've worshipped him and that we're, we're drawing near to him in our spirits in a special way. For a number of recent Sundays, we've been examining the Bible's teaching on holiness Pastor Greg Montague, who I am filling in for this morning, has been taking us through a whole bunch of passages in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus delivered and uh, framing that in the context of how we can practice holiness in our lives. The word holy at its most basic level simply means set apart. It means set apart for a special purpose. So when we took our normal routines on Thursday and shifted them around and turned it into a day of expressing gratitude and celebration and having a feast, we were making that Thursday a holy day, a holiday. That's where, that's where that derives from, right? And I don't know about you, but that's my favorite holiday. If that's all it takes to be holy, I think we just celebrate that holiday, what, every other week, Sam? Think we can pull that one off? I would love that. We don't usually think of holiness that way, do we? When we speak of the word holiness, it's probably more for, for most of us normal folks. It's probably more like saying, hey, let's go summit Mount Everest this weekend. Let's go try to climb the 20, 29,000 feet to the top of the world and see how that goes. It seems like holiness is unattainable to our way of thinking. To be honest, it's downright undesirable. What, why would we want to put ourselves through that kind of thing anyway? And one of the big misses for us and for religious people in general when we try to talk about this subject of holiness is we think we need to do it all by ourselves. We need to pull ourselves up by some spiritual bootstraps and we need to be rule followers. We need to start keeping a, a bunch of do's and don'ts. We need to somehow have holiness then imparted on us so that God will look at us and say, boy, you are really good. I have to accept you now. And the people around us that look at us will say, wow, look at that Christian. Look at that. That girl doesn't smoke or drink or do drugs. Look at, look at that guy. He works hard. He takes care of his family. He goes to church on Sundays. Just about every Sunday, the guy's there. What a holy guy. We think of this long list of do's and don'ts, and it will impart holiness to us. Is that really what the Bible wants us to think about holiness? Is that really what the Bible means by that term? I'm not going to fool anyone when I say we've got uh, tons of people in our culture that have tried to give an image of holiness respect respectableness the people that we've put up on a pedestal we're seeing it in the news constantly these days but i've seen it throughout my whole life and i know you have too where when the secret lives of individuals are made known we see there's a deep darkness there there's really a lot that's not to be respected in that person's life politicians 
pastors, comedians, actors, CEOs, maybe, maybe family members, our own moms and dads, their reputations come crashing down because that kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and project this, this illusion of holiness is not true holiness in a biblical sense. You know, the Bible even tells us in Ezekiel 28 that the highest ranking angel in heaven, created by God as an example, the being we know as Satan now or as Lucifer, he was made great. He was made good by God. He was, it says in Ezekiel 28, he was a model of perfection, wisdom, beauty, anointed and ordained by God himself. And what was the problem? He came crashing down because evil was found in his heart. He had the reputation like no other, but that's, what, what, that's not what was going on in the inside. When we just project this illusion of holiness, even if we really try hard at it, the Bible calls that self-righteousness, self-righteousness. And that kind of label comes with a warning. If you think you're standing firm on your self-righteousness, if you think you're standing firm, be careful. You're going to fall. And we've seen that constantly. Well, in the Bible this morning, I'd like to take a look with you at the historical book of Acts, the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible near you and you want to turn to that, we're going to look at chapter 16. There's a story here about a couple friends named Paul and Silas, traveling companions. We know them as traveling missionaries. And there's an event recorded that's just fascinating to me about uh, a trip that they take into a certain place, and we'll get into the details of it. But it really kind of starts to illustrate a different way to think about holiness. So we'll look at this story from Acts 16. We'll look at a few of the writings that Paul, one of these two fellows, had on this subject in the book of Romans. And then hopefully by the time we get to the end this morning, we'll have a little different sense of what the heart of the Bible's teaching is on holiness, its practical meaning. So maybe it's not so foreign to us. There's not such a feeling that, oh, it's, it's unattainable except for a very limited few. It actually is essential in our lives and it's attainable as a process, as part of our, our life journey. So before we uh, jump into the scripture, let me uh, say a prayer for us. We'll ask God's blessing on that and then we'll dive in. Thank you, Father. For this book you've given us, this word of yours, you tell us it is living and active, and we want it to be that way today for us. Make it alive and active and, and relevant as we seek your heart on this subject of holiness, God. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear the, the good things that you have prepared in advance for us to do with our lives. Help us to see those and to do them, God. We know that will, that will be a fulfilling thing for us and for you as well. Bless this time now in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. Uh, and obviously, if you don't have a Bible near you, we'll have the, the words up on the screen. But Paul and Silas, these traveling missionaries, are explaining to anyone who will listen to them about this new faith that they have converted to. They're telling people about all these events that have taken place recently in Israel about, you know, there was this Jesus guy and he died and was buried and rose again. And they're trying to go out and convince people now in their own lives to convert, to follow this person because we've discovered, we think he's the son of God. 
And he has an offer for each of us for forgiveness, for eternal life. So this is their life right now. They're kind of out there on the road, camp, camp outs and, and uh, little meetings with people. Uh, just prior to this part of the story that we're going to read in Acts 16, it's a fascinating little snippet. This doesn't seem to happen much for us. Maybe some of you have experienced it, but I haven't. But Paul experienced a vision. He saw a vision from heaven. And this kind of uh, supernatural event was frequent in his life. His life was marked by these supernatural visions. This one was really basic. Didn't take a lot of interpretation or a lot of meditation on his part. It was simply a man from a region nearby, the region of Macedonia, saying, please come and help us. That was the vision. Paul, please come and help us. So that's where we see Paul and uh, Silas as they're heading in on their journey here. They're going to, in, within Macedonia, they're going to the city of Philippi, the city of Philippi. And I'll just start reading from Acts chapter 16, 16 through 25. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews they shouted to the city officials, they are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten. And then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. And we get this last little line. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were praying and singing hymns to God after all that. And we're going to develop that a little further in the message this morning about why I believe those that response, those actions that they engaged in of singing and praying actually is an indication of the holiness that they had in their lives. Okay, so you keep that in the back of your mind. They're demonstrating to anyone, any one of us, how holiness, like Tarek talked about, can bring us peace, regardless of our circumstances. How holiness can overcome, we sang about that in that first song, how holiness can overcome in the most difficult, dangerous, hopeless moments of our lives. But you know, there's a whole bunch in these verses that I think we need to explore first before we jump right to that conclusion. This community of Philippi, by and large, are not worshipers of our God, Yahweh, who we would call the one true God. They're not, as a community, worshipers of the Jewish and Christian God. There's not a significant presence of Jewish people even in this community. How do we know this? Well, we can tell that because when Paul and Silas arrive, these two Jewish men, they're going down, it said, to a place of prayer. 
They're going down to a place of prayer. Everywhere else these fellows traveled, what was the first place they would go to? It was the Jewish synagogue. They were going to see their fellow Jewish people. When they came to Philippi, there is no Jewish synagogue. Why was that? Because in their traditions, if you didn't have at least 10 Jewish men, and I think they just had to be the age 13 to be counted as a man, if you didn't have 10 Jewish men, you were not to constitute a synagogue. That was kind of a, what's the word, a quorum? That was a quorum of expectation. So they've come to this place where there's very little worshipers of God present. The default when you couldn't have a synagogue was to have a place of prayer. They called it a place of prayer. And it was usually down by the river because they had uh, purification rites that they were involved in in their worship assemblies. And it was nice, it was convenient to have running water nearby for those things. So we know there's not a large community of, of God worshipers in this little place. And that's the first significant point in this passage that I think we need to look at. The challenges to holiness in this world, it's significant that the moral and spiritual fabric of any community does not have worshipers of God. It's a deficit in that community. What we see when we don't have people worshiping God in a community is a spiritual vacuum takes over. What we see in these verses, this little, this little snapshot of Philippi, is how that vacuum often in our world is filled. Whatever system comes to prominence in a God-less community, whatever comes to dominance or prominence, whether a false religion or, or secularism or some politicalism, you fill in the blank, the vacuum created by this absence of God tends to draw out the most unholy kinds of activities from the hearts of the people. It tends to draw, draw out the most uh, unholy expressions of human depravity. What do we mean by that? Well, let's look, let's look back through some of those verses in Acts 16. I just made a quick list of them here. The, first thing, the very first thing we notice is we see dark spiritual practices, kind of occultic type things tend to go on in a culture like that. We immediately see this slave girl, what is she involved in? Fortune telling. And we know it's not just like a huckster game, there's literally a spiritual being involved in this with her, a demon is involved in this situation. So occultic practices tend to emerge in communities where there's not a, a worshiping community of God. Value systems, boy, I'm sorry, I'm really dry today. Value systems emerge that allow for the abuse, the misuse of women, even young women like this girl. We see slavery, the, the forced domination of one person by another in these kind of communities. What else do we see? Greed, exploitation on the part of those masters, right? All they cared about that girl for was, how much money can she make me? We see ethnic division, racism, and outsider mentality in these verses. You know, it's those Jews, right? That ethnic category, and we Romans, it's an us versus them kind of thing. We're not all united in this kind of community. We see mob rule take over 
often. Wasn't it amazing how quickly a mob was gathered in this little situation with Paul and Silas that we read about? A guilty until proven innocent justice system often arises in these places. A guilty until proven innocent. Look at the beating those boys took with rods. Not just violent punishment, but inhumane treatment of prisoners. And then finally, God's message of hope in a community like this just kind of falls on deaf ears. It goes unheard. It's publicly mocked or misrepresented. That's Acts 16. You recognize any of those things from our day? Maybe only if you routinely watch the evening news. Why is this happening in this culture? Why does this happen in our culture? Because many, many of us have forgotten God. We've forgotten the God of the Jews and the Christians, Yahweh, the one true God. This is not unique to Philippi. It's not unique to our day. We have seen this time and time again down through history. We see it now in places all around the world when God is rejected, when God's truth is suppressed, when God's ways are abandoned, the restraints around evil in our world are loosened. They're loosened. And we begin to see more and more of this kind of behavior. It's not a pleasant thing. Paul and Silas, unfortunately, don't get a pass on this. I wish I could stand up here and say, well, you know, if you just follow Jesus, you'll be able to sidestep the consequences of all these kind of things going on in a godless society. But we're not exempt. We don't somehow miraculously get to sidestep the things that are created in this kind of environment. And sure enough, that's what we see in this story, don't we? Paul and Silas are immediately swept up. Their lives are almost devastated in, in such speed that it takes your breath away because of what was going on in that community. It's not fair, is it? These are holy men. They were responding to a vision from God. They came here to do these good things, right? It's not fair that this happened to them. Like basically the first day they walk in the door, they're mocked, lied about, attacked, caned, falsely imprisoned, and I don't know if you know much about those prisons back then. It's not like the country club some of our folks get to be imprisoned in these days. In the Roman prison system, the guards worked on an ethic of a life for a life. Do you notice in that, in that passage where the jailer was specifically told, these men better be here in the morning. You better make sure you've got them here in the morning. Why was that such a concern? He knows what's implied in that command. In the life for a life system, if those fellows are gone, his life is over. That's pretty brutal. Do you think he went home for dinner that night? I don't think he did either. He locks them up tight. He kept watching. He kept listening intently for any hint of a sound that they might be trying to, to slip out of their stocks and get away. And as this jailer listened, intently. What did he hear? Did he hear Paul and Silas groaning about the beating they had taken? 
Yeah, probably did. I can imagine that really hurt. I've never been beaten with a bunch of sticks, but I can imagine that really hurt. Did he hear Paul and Silas raging and cursing and protesting the violation of their rights and crying out for justice and fairness? Did he hear them rallying the other prisoners, trying to start their own mob in some way maybe to escape? What did that jailer hear from these guys? He listens, and in the darkness, a little after midnight, he hears prayers to God, singing of hymns to God. Apparently, and we didn't read this far, you'll have to read this, but apparently they were pretty good singers. Because they didn't get shouted down by the other guys. It says all the prisoners and the guards were listening while these two fellows sang. What do you suppose they were praying about in their deep, dark dungeon in the stocks? I know what I'd probably have on my prayer list. You know, God, where are you? I'm kind of angry. I'm kind of confused. I'm frustrated. I came here because you sent me a vision. And this is where I'm at now? Or it might be, oh God, my body hurts so bad. Why did you let this happen to me? There's no turning back from some of these injuries. I'm going to have these forever. Or truly for me, Mr. Sensitive, I'd probably say, God, it really stinks in here. It reeks in this prison. Could you at least do a little minor like nose miracle and like a smeller miracle? Turn the, turn the smeller off. You know, that's, that's probably where I'd be begin, but I don't think it's where Paul and Silas began. You know what I bet was going on in their prayer life that night? I bet it was very much like what it was for the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. Oh God, please forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Remember when Jesus said that? I bet they're saying the same thing. I bet they're saying, oh God, Please be with that little slave girl. We don't know what's going to happen to her now that she's lost value to her masters. Can you imagine that's kind of part of their prayer life? What do you think they were singing? You know, maybe they were singing for comfort, like we do. Remember that old song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? Maybe they're singing to just kind of distract themselves. Interesting the way we express different things with singing, isn't it? We got some grandmas and mamas in my family now, and I've watched grandmas and mamas sing to little babies, and they sing these beautiful songs and, and hope to bring about peace and a sense of security, and please, oh God, let them fall asleep. <laughs> you know, that's part of what singing can be for us sometimes. The best singers among us in our culture tend to become very wealthy because we love that kind of entertainment, right? I don't think any of these were part of what was going on in the singing of Paul and, Cy Paul and Silas. They weren't just looking to, the f to fill their ears with a pleasant distraction to keep from thinking about the severity of their situation. They were singing, it says, to someone. They were singing to God. It was very personal. Have you ever had anybody sing to you? Have you ever sung to someone? Sandra and I attended a friend's daughter's wedding. We've kind of known of this little girl since she was that tiny, and now she's married. 
And at the reception, as the bride and groom had, you know how they do all the dances with the mom and the son and the daughter and all that? The bride and groom had their first dance. And I was watching this. I, they were accompanied by a song that I didn't know. Found out later it's an old Donna Lewis song. Some of you guys may know it. And a lot of times you'll see these couples, and they're just pleasantly chatting and discussing things while they're dancing around, maybe talking about the day. Not this young lady. She is looking right into her groom's eyes, and she is singing to him every word. She knew every word of that song. I love you. Always, forever, near and far, closer together everywhere, I will be with you. And it went on from there. And the lyrics went on and kind of asked for the groom, you know, to return that sense of love. The words were something like, uh, say you'll love, love me forever, never stop, never whatever, and so on. And maybe I'm a little bit sappy, I'm a little bit romantic. I've married off three of my daughters, so maybe I was feeling a little nostalgic that day, but it was so beautiful. She, she captured my heart just watching that beautiful moment. Whether she realized it or not, what she was doing was singing about her holiness to this young man, that she was forever set apart for him. You know, we're called the bride of Christ in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? And I think part of what was going on with Paul and Silas in this moment is they are singing to the great love of their life, not in a romantic fashion, but in that heartfelt, personal connection that followers of Jesus experience sometimes. Rather than grouse and complain, rather than worry and fret, Somehow they were able to defer in their spirits to the one true God. They were able to trust this one God that had every moment of their lives in his hands. That kind of holiness is mesmerizing. I think that's why that probably the roughest population of Philippi, the prison population, silently sat there and listened to it and enjoyed it. What was these guys' secret? How could they react that way in such a hellish, hellish place? What, what will give us power in our inner being to respond this way in our darkest moments? Well, Paul and Silas found a way to, to be okay with being prisoners in this jail because a long time before in their life, they had made a decision, they had elected to be prisoners of God. In fact, more than that, the Bible tells us these gentlemen and others like them had made a decision in their life to consider themselves as slaves to God. Look at how Peter or uh, Paul introduces a whole bunch of the letters that he wrote to his friends that we have in the Bible. Philemon 1, it says, this letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.1, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, Titus 1.1, this letter is from Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Some might say, well, that Paul, you know, brilliant guy, but you know, maybe he's exaggerating things a little bit, but it wasn't just Paul that thought this way about his relationship to the Lord. A lot of the guys that were following Jesus at that time felt the same way. Look at how some of the other 
Bible writers express this. James 1.1, he was actually the half-brother of Jesus. Imagine writing this about your brother. James 1.1, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, this letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1, this letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Even John the Baptist, who didn't write anything, but we have his teachings in the gospel said, but someone, Jesus, is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater than I, that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. Is this kind of, it's kind of wacky talk. It's kind of wacky what these people have come up with. Is this really what, bottom line, is this really what God is expecting from us? Does he want us to be his slaves? You know, in our society, probably every society, I guess, every good person I know would have a visceral reaction against any kind of forced slavery, right? Why? Because we love people. We, we value people because they're made by God, and we call it them having intrinsic worth. They are valuable simply because they are made by God. So why would God choose this kind of metaphor of slavery where it almost seems to imply we're valued less? We know that's not true. He sent his son for us. His, the, the, it talks about in one of the Peters, the, he paid with his priceless son's blood. So we know God has the same view of us that we have, this high value. Why would he choose the metaphor of slavery like this? And it almost seemed to imply that we're valued less. Well, slavery is very much a term about power. Where the weaker is forced to serve the stronger, forced to serve the stronger. And on our plane of existence, this mortal plane, is that what Shakespeare called it? On our plane of existence, what the Bible calls the seen world, no human ever has the right to force slavery, mastery upon another human being. We are always right to be disgusted by forced slavery in this world because we're all equal, every one of us. And the flip side of this applies, no matter how brilliant or superior or powerful you perceive someone else in your life to be, you are never to offer yourself in a slavish way to another human being. There is one master for all of us in the seen world, and that is God. But Paul and Silas had come to an understanding of something deeper that I, that I hope to convey through these remaining verses this morning, that there's a power struggle going on that's at a whole different level than just the seen world. Our reality, the Bible teaches, encompasses both the seen and the unseen world. And in that struggle, we human beings are definitely the lesser beings. We're not, we're not of lesser value, but from a power standpoint, we aren't in the game. 
We've been given a, a glimpse of this unseen world in numerous places around Scripture. It would be interesting maybe to just study that for a time. But I've just selected one verse from Ephesians 6 that portrays this power di dynamic, this, this interplay of power between the seen and unseen world. Listen to what this says in Ephesians 6, 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. You know, Paul and Silas understood this. And they could be at peace in that smelly, deep, dark dungeon where they were chained up because they realized that jailer was not their enemy. They realized that that mob and those magistrates that had them beaten and the slave girl and all the masters, they were not the source of their struggle, were they? When we come to understand this this dynamic of the power of the unseen world, they realized they were prisoners. These people that had brought pain into Paul and Silas' life, they were prisoners too. They were slaves, but of a different master. And that's the very reason God had sent them the vision. It was the very reason they had come. So painful or not, it was their very pain at the hands of these people that was confirmation from God that his message was desperately needed in that community. And they were able to get past the pain and realize the purpose for their lives in that place. You know, in this larger struggle that encompasses both the seen and unseen world, the Bible teaches that each one of us is is at the level of a slave when it comes to the power scale. And we need the support and power of a master who can play in that realm, who has the power to win in that realm. We are slaves, the Bible says, but with the privilege of choosing who our master is going to be. Paul did some wonderful writing on this in Romans chapter 6. I grabbed a couple excerpts, and this will be kind of how we finish up this morning. Um, he explained this, I, I say it in the inspired writings, because sometimes we give Paul credit, but it's the Holy Spirit that inspired all this. Let's look first at Romans 6.19. He says this, because of the weakness of your human nature... I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become, there's our word, holy, so that you will become holy. You see the connection between us getting hold of this idea of slavery and, and holiness, slavery to the master is our path to true holiness in our lives. Until you and I can acknowledge that in humility, how do I say this in a way that doesn't insult you? We're going to continue to live as pawns and slaves of the bad masters that are out there. And they are so good at deceiving us, deceiving us. We don't even sometimes realize that's what's happening in our lives, do we? How many people have you met that are under the influence of these taskmasters instead of the true master, and yet every evil thing that happens in their life, they blame on God? 
He's the problem. When what they've done is, is leave God out and leave God out and abandon his ways and loosen the, the restraints on evil in their personal life. And guess what? That's what's been being set loose. And we don't have the power to fight that way. There's hope for each one of us from these scriptures that, that holiness is attainable if we will offer ourselves to this one master. Let's look at another one from Romans 6. I'd encourage you to read this whole chapter. I just, I just grabbed a few verses out of it. Romans 6, 12 through 14, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body, your ears, your eyes, your tongue, your hands, your fists, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. There's that whole rule keeping we started with. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. You know, it's interesting, it's, it's really, holiness is not about rule keeping. It, it, will, it will look like that at times because the rule keepers are probably making a lot of the same life choices as those of us who are following the master make. The outcome looks the same, but we don't have to sweat it if we come up short a little bit. The rule keepers are always wondering, have I done enough? Have I done enough? If I, if I die and I haven't done enough, am I going to be condemned? What is, what? We don't have to live that way, folks. We serve the master. And what this, what this little passage is telling us is we have freedom because of his grace. So our choices may look a lot like kind of the list we started with, don't drink, don't smoke, you know, whatever your do's and don'ts are. But the, the heart underneath it of true holiness is I am offering myself to the master and he's going to give me power to say no to the things that I need to say no to and power to say yes when I need to say yes. We don't need to live in fear of measuring up to some standard because that's what Jesus took care of for us on the cross. We could never measure up to the standard of holiness that we need to. That's why Jesus came to make this kind of freedom and grace available to us. Last, last section and we'll be done. Romans 6, 16 through 18, and then a couple other verses after that. This may be, this may be a little too much. You guys doing all right, Tom? I'm a little late, but I just thought this was so well written. He says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You're ashamed, right? You're now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness. There's our word again, that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. 
That's what I want to present to you this morning as a little different way to think about holiness, that this is really an offering of ourselves to the one who will make us holy. You know, we kind of cut off at that Acts 16 passage right when the story was about to turn. So if you're interested, that'll be your homework. Go home and read because it goes all the way out 40 verses or something. But powerful story of what God did in that little community because of Paul and Silas's commitment to holiness in the, in the worst of circumstances. One last thought and we'll be done. I don't know if your heart went out this way, the way mine did, but that's, that's historical writing. That was a real slave girl. And they don't tell us what happened to her. I kind of like to know. You know, all we're told is Paul looked at the, the demon and said, get out of here. And, and he instantly, instantly left. But we don't know. What, what did the masters do? What happened with that young life? And it, I just want to say this to you. You know, sometimes we get the idea that if I just clean up my life, if I get, get my house swept out a little bit, maybe even escape from a, an oppressor somehow like this girl did, everything, everything feels peaceful again. Everything's okay. But the Bible's really clear. If you just try to sweep out your own house, all you're left with is a vacant house. It's empty. And it may feel a little peaceful for a little while, but you're vulnerable in an empty house to the next unholy desire that's going to come or the next unholy oppressor that's going to come. So if, if you feel that sense of emptiness, wherever you are in that place today, I want you to know Jesus is standing here offering himself and asking you to offer yourself back to him. He will come into that empty place. He'll come in and live with you and go through this with you. And you have, have the master at your disposal to give you the power to live a holy life. That's what we're talking about here this morning. If that's you, we're going to stand and have a closing prayer, if you guys would join me. If you're feeling that way toward the Lord, use this quiet time during our prayer just to express that to him. Let the Lord know you want to engage in that kind of a relationship with him. And honestly, if you need just to talk to someone, I'm going to be down here. I'm sure you have friends here that maybe could help too. But let's bow and, and pray. Thank you so much for your attention this morning, guys. Father, we are uh, so honored that you treasure us and value us like you do. We want to express that same respect and honor and holiness back to you every day. Thank you for your forgiveness when that that turns into a stumble in our lives and your grace that sets it right. And I just pray that each one of us could, could enter the rest of this day and this week with that sense of, of love and um, desire to, to please you. Thank you that we can be your slaves, as odd as that may sound at times, but we know you are the master. We trust your goodness. We trust in your power. And Lord, for the ones here that don't know you, I pray that you would just be present in their lives in a special way today. Let them not leave this place without knowing the, the touch of your spirit. You know, as they sang about in that song, come Holy Spirit, come. I pray that that would be true for us. And watch over Greg and Lori as they enjoy this break. I pray that you'd re-energize them, bring them back to us safely. And thank you for each one here. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.
Thank you all.